Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. On today's episode, Millen and I are joined by Katie Cole. Katie completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and her graduate degree in Cornell University's Sloan Program in Health Administration. Currently, Katie serves as a senior project manager in strategic planning and business development at Beth Israel Leahy Health. Prior to serving in this role, Katie was a consultant at the Chartist Group and a risk adjustment program manager at Tufts Health Plan. In this episode, we discussed an array of topics ranging from the shifting priorities of academic medical centers to career advice for aspiring hospital strategists. As always, we hope you enjoy our content. And with that, let's begin the episode. We're really excited to have you on. We appreciate all of our guests, obviously, but getting the chance to speak to another Sloney is always a pleasure of ours, and we're really looking forward to our discussion. Great. Happy to be here. Great. And I'll be getting us kicked off with questions. As I'm sure you've seen, we're experiencing a tremendous amount of disruption across the healthcare landscape due to factors such as value-based care or consumerism. And with that in mind, can you talk about how you see the priorities of academic medical centers changing over the next five years or so? So I actually would argue that the level of disruption due to value-based care arrangements really hasn't been as dramatic, I think, as you know some scholars may have predicted it to be. Um, I think a huge caveat to that um, depends on what market you're in um, and the relative payer dominance in each of those markets. So for example, you know, I've worked mostly in Massachusetts and we have a very regulated market and we've been doing, you know, some form of value-based care for, I don't know, at least for the 10 years that I've been working in healthcare. And honestly, when I think we've seen some mixed results, I think, you know, the intent really was how can you truly, you know, how can a, usually a primary care physician as the gatekeeper manage a population? And what's interesting, I think there's, there's a bit here where you may not really be able to truly manage all elements of patient care. So I, I think we've seen some mixed success here in Massachusetts that you know we I think are a bit above the curve. I think another example is you know Texas, for instance. And so this is you know a very, very highly unregulated market, you know, at least compared to Massachusetts. And I worked there um, about a year ago um, doing some of their strategic planning work. And you know, here you have you know a population that you know skews younger, has a growing population. And yes, they do have, you know, some value-based care arrangements with some clinically integrated networks, but the academic medical centers there, like, they really haven't been forced to change. Um, they're still high, highly profitable, kind of in the regular fee-for-service model, and so are really hanging on. And I, I mean, I've been clients elsewhere in the country where, you know, depending on the type of government you have and how quickly things are moving, you know, you still can probably exist in that traditional model, especially if you have the patient demand. Um, I mean, I think there are some examples where things, you know, have been happening more gradually and, you know, this really makes sense. So for instance, the move from inpatient, you know, hospital-based facility care to outpatient in different freestanding um, facilities. So I think that's kind of one, one example of where a lot of, you know, payers are moving the thing here. I mean, particularly Medicare, which, you know, often sets the pace for a lot of the moves to value-based care. And, you know, there has been a lot in the ACA, that's a piece of it. But again, I think, I think it's fairly gradual. I mean, we see, I think orthopedics being the good example, you know, a lot of ortho care is happening in the outpatient setting as it should, but I think hospital systems 
for the most part, have a pretty good heads up with, you know, the different type of bundle payments that are coming down. So I think one of the things, and, you know, as we talk about strategic planning, I think there was this big, like, oh my gosh, value-based care is coming, be ready. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, has been as successful as one would like. Um, but that said, completely market dependent. That's a really interesting point you made, how um, where you're located in the pair mix kind of dictates the sense of urgency you have to move towards value-based care. For our next question, we want to get a bit more targeted. Some provider service lines can obviously be more margin accretive than others. And in your experience, what have you seen providers do to grow their service lines and make them as competitive as possible? Growth can really happen, I guess, in one of two ways. So the first being, you know, organic market growth increase in like disease prevalence that you see or different therapies. And then the second piece and probably what you're more interested in is kind of that, you know, making a strategic market play. You know, how do you become more competitive and steal market share um, and really capture, you know, that growing demand. Um, one of the things that I think, you know, the first obviously being the easiest. And I think honestly, a lot of health systems have benefited from, you know, capturing growing demand as our population ages and, you know, people have more, you know, acute and chronic conditions that are being treated. So there really is that natural piece. But the second piece, again, this is where I think the strategy comes into play. And so it's really, you know, understanding your capabilities and services that you're providing, you know, vis-a-vis -vis your competitors, and then really having that aligned network where, you know, they're aware of what you offer, you know, all your different services and capabilities and actually can refer patients in. So this comes back to, you know, why you have aligned networks, why a lot of health systems really are actually focusing on primary care, which sometimes you're like, oh, primary care tends to be a lost leader, but it's all about that downstream interview. And I think in lieu of having any strong referring provider base, that's when a lot of these systems are, you know, looking at, you know, who they can partner with, how can, you know, tertiary quaternary providers partner with, you know, community hospitals that may not be affiliated. So I think you're seeing, you know, growth in that way. But I know kind of what we do in my department, you know, one of the main focuses even on, you know, out migration of patients. So we can say, you know, in our whole network of care, these are all the patients that you have, you know, who's going to other systems. And these are your own patients that you should be able to keep in network. So I know at least in, you know, the Massachusetts market, there's a really strong focus on, you know, you might not be able to steal a competitor's patient, you know, there are certain referral chains that are really, really locked in place, but you should be able to keep your own patients. And so, you know, the types of physician education that goes along with that, maybe you don't offer the best services and you should invest in a few areas where you're seeing growth. And there are a lot of tools to say, you know, these are the, you know, the therapeutics that are growing, the service lines that are growing, you know, inpatient versus outpatient. And, you know, having all the analytics to support that is another big piece of, you know, what can grow. But again, I think, you know, a lot of folks will look at the kind of quadrant of if you have a high profit, high growth service line, you should focus there. Um, obviously, there's a lot more that goes beyond that. A lot of the subservice lines, when you get into the details of the capabilities, you know, what type of recruitment are you looking for? But generally speaking, I would say systems who traditionally just grown just because the market's growing are facing, you know, realizing they have to be a little bit more strategic as everybody's becoming much more competitive, people are consolidating, and you really have to, you know, work harder at just even maintaining a lot of your volumes. I definitely agree. And it seems like if I'm hearing you correctly, 
it's interesting to see how the external competitive market kind of manifests itself for providers internally in terms of what they choose to offer from a service line standpoint. Katie, you know, I, I want to uh, dive a little bit deeper into the strategic vision of organizations moving forward. Uh, you know, in our previous episode of the podcast with Dr. Chernak, you know, she, she kind of brought up this idea that, you know, health systems are now slowly beginning to integrate uh, academic medical centers and teaching hospitals with community hospitals. And I know Beth Israel, uh, you know, just recently in the last two years announced that they were also kind of moving towards that initiative. So can you talk a little bit more about how this has changed the strategic vision of the entire organization? So I think this is a very timely question. Um, so just to give a little bit of background on myself. So, you know, having, you know, come from the parent environment, attended Sloan, and then I ended up working for a strategy consulting firm. And as part of that work, I, um, for about two years, worked on the integration of Beth Israel Leahy Health, um, which you just alluded to. And so as part of the integration, there really were actually two major healthcare systems coming together. Beth Israel um, Deaconess, which had their, you know, their AMC downtown in Longwood, as well as um, three other community hospitals already part of that system. You had Leahy um, Health, which you had um, Leahy Medical Center as a teaching hospital, along with, you know, Beverly Hospital, Winchester Hospital. So all in all, the integration and kind of the whole merger was 13 different hospitals. Again, you know, very complex, you know, complex for Massachusetts that hadn't seen integration to that degree in probably about 30 years since MGB first came together. And so kind of getting to your question about, you know, how does that work with, you know, academic medical centers and community hospitals coming together? I mean, I think that we've seen over the past years, I mean, everybody's consolidating. We've almost gotten to the point where there's really almost no one left to acquire for, you know, in some instances, unless there really isn't a, you know, a strong, financial reason to. And I think, you know, kind of like I said before, it's understanding and like really, you know, where the patients are coming from. And so in order for an academical medical center, which, you know, really truly should be doing mostly, you know, tertiary quaternary care, you know, the highest levels of care, they really need that feeder population, you know, to feed that, you know, high level care. And there's, you know, a lot of analyses you can do to say, you know, how many lives are needed to support like one type of surgery or for like every diagnosis, what would require, you know, this type of acute care. And so I think, you know, systems have realized this, this is nothing new, but I think what we're seeing, you know, in this example particularly happened, you know, two years ago, right before COVID hit. And one of the most interesting things to come out of this is what you could do as a system um, during COVID. So this included being able to transfer patients within your system. If you, you know, had, you know, high, you know, loads at one, you could kind of load balance, you could share PPE. There's a lot of synergies when it comes to, you know, supply chain and things like that. So I think, you know, the, the reason for why the system came together, uh, I think paired with it was a lower cost option than, you know, being in the highest cost market here in Massachusetts, they could actually prove, you know, the cost qual quality proposition as well. And so I think it only makes sense as we're, you know, I think there is a move to keep care more local. There is a move that, you know, regular kind of commodity care probably shouldn't be happening in high cost settings like academic medical centers. And that all makes sense for a lot of different reasons. 
Um, so I think, you know, so far we'll see how this goes. We're embarking on um, an enterprise strategic planning process really as we speak. Um, and so I think that will be really just exciting to really determine, you know, we've come together as a system now, who are we, you know, to the market? And, you know, this is kind of work I've done at a lot of different um, systems is, you know, who are we going to be for, um, to the market? And it's different for every, you know, single organization. Got it. So it sounds like from what I'm hearing, you know, it, it seems like health systems integrating and kind of consolidating is definitely the immediate trend in the next five years. And it sounds like that's gonna be the future towards keeping costs lower uh, and providing more local care. I wanna I, I wanna pick a, a bit of a point that you mentioned with enterprises. Can you tell me a little bit more about the enterprise division at Beth Israel? And is it more of a consulting unit that sort of internally addresses ongoing issues with certain departments, or is it more focused on partnerships and acquisitions and even to an extent investment opportunities? So I guess whatever you want to call it, whether it's corporate, enterprise, you know, headquarters, I mean, it's really kind of the parent company um, that all, you know, the entire health system sits under. So you have, you know, all of the business units, but you have kind of the primary care wings, the positions, you know, all of that really composes the entire healthcare system. And so um, right now where I work in the office of strategy, you know, that is at, I guess you'd call enterprise level. We don't really refer to ourselves as enterprise, but you kind of, outline kind of the two different components of the work that we do. So first is, you know, every single business unit has their own growth priorities, kind of opportunities that they're continually assessing. And we, you know, for the most part brought together two separate systems that had a lot of that historical work going on. So, you know, growing one specific service line at BID and C takes a lot of work. So you have people from our team doing some of that more on the grounds work. Um, you also have, you know, an entire market intelligence and analytics unit that, you know, we've recently stood up together as the system came together. And so again, this is, you're looking at a lot of the state encounter databases to understand where you are in the market. And this is, you know, more so at the global level, but you can drill down depending on, you know, what service line you want to look at, what geography in the state you want to look at. And so a lot of that work is also happening within our group. And then, as I said before, you know, as of actually um, last week, we're kind of saying, you know, now that we've been a system for two years, let's take the view of the entire healthcare system. And, you know, how should we prioritize, you know, the different initiatives and, you know, kind of the vision, mission, values work that, you know, is really meaningful work to help, you know, everybody, you know, really get on board with what they're doing, what the health system's doing. And I think we're at a good point right now to be doing a lot of that work, given kind of where we're at in the integration process of the system. So a little bit of both, a little bit of on the grounds, tactical work operations, a little bit of high, high level, who do we want to be when we grow up strategy work. Got it. Okay. No, I think that makes sense. So it sounds like there's really a good split with focusing on growth opportunities within you know, specific hospitals within the system and units and service lines, and then at a higher level, kind of focusing overall on the healthcare market and focusing on, okay, where can we expand and, you know, use analytics to kind of break into that market. So I guess my question here is tying the last two questions with, you know, more integrations into the health system and then focusing more specifically at the enterprise level. You know, I'm seeing a lot of health systems now focusing on partnerships with community hospitals and specifically with private physician groups. Um, there's, there's an increasing amount of 
hospitals and systems that I'm seeing that are just buying up physician groups like crazy. So can you kind of address the most challenging components of forming these strategic partnerships with other organizations? What all do you have to consider in order to make sure that this is a successful venture? I mean, so everything dependent on, you know, the type of partnership, the size of the partnership, but I think you know, ultimately a lot of this comes down to who gets to call the shots at the end of the day. So the fight over the 51% versus 49% stake really can make or break a deal. And, you know, who's going to be in that leadership position, um, who answers to who. I think kind of when you talked about a lot of the private physician groups, I think there are a lot of groups out there where they've been strongly independent and successful for a long time. And their independence is a big big piece of the negotiation, like they will not give up their independence, they will affiliate, they will have, you know, referral channels, but they may not want to be wholeheartedly owned by a health system. I think, you know, this comes into actually pay factors where a lot of private docs, you know, you can make more money sometimes not in the employed model. So I mean, again, sometimes it's who can call the shots, who gets employed. Um, but I think, just generally speaking, it's also about, you know, the fluffier stuff sometimes too, of like the mission and kind of the strategic vision of the leader at stake. I, I was working in um, Iowa last year and there's some interesting, um, interesting stories of, you know, health systems trying to come together. You know, they go through the whole kind of formal process, like, you know, what can you give us? What can I give you? You know, how do we make this relationship work? And sometimes it just, you know, can the people even get along in the two different organizations um, is a really big factor. So I think, again, like I said, organizations have been consolidating, you know, vertically, horizontally for some time now. I think this is nothing new. I think we're almost at the point where, like I said before, there's not as much opportunity left out there for some of this continued consolidation. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of this vertical integration of maybe non-traditional components and so not necessarily acquiring more hospitals, but acquiring you know, different types of you know, services you might not traditionally see as part of a healthcare system, you know, be it you know, digital health platforms and you know, other innovations like that. One more follow-up question that I had on that note is, you know, with some large health systems and academic medical centers like, you know, your Cleveland Clinics, Mayo, UPMC, those organizations place a really strong emphasis on sort of hospital-backed ventures to supplement their innovation that's already coming from the AMCs. And, you know, a lot of that focus right now is towards digital health. So I'm just curious, do you see other systems following suit uh, in, the, in the near future? Why or why not? I mean, I think everyone realizes that you know, they really need to diversify their portfolios and, you know, hospitals and health systems that are too dependent on net patient service revenue, like they know they're, you know, increasingly at risk. Again, as we said, you know, payment, you know, they're not going to be in this, you know, world of oh, fee for service, we can charge whatever we want payment. I mean, transparency, consumerism, I mean, those all will force, you know, a lot of the, you know, margins that some of them have been experienced, you know, to maybe not have those revenue streams anymore. So I think it's all about how do you diversify, you know, the portfolio of the health system. So you do have places like, you know, Cleveland Clinic, UPMC, you know, they're looking at a lot of those venture backed um, kind of more innovative solutions as another revenue stream. And I mean, I think that it, it makes a lot of sense. I think there's also a piece where everybody probably can't have their own digital health platform. I think we saw a lot with the, you know, way back in the day with electronic medical records that, you know, everybody kind of did their own thing. And then 
a lot, it kind of converges on, you know, at least the major, you know, two to three players and that you have. And so, I mean, I think they'll probably be a little bit like that, but I mean, it fits perfectly. If you think an academic medical center, they have that, you know, research academic mission. And when you think of innovation, you think of some of these, you know, different ventures, it really fits in with the overall mission of the organization. Got it. Okay. And for my last question, uh, Katie, you know, I know you worked a little bit for almost three years at Tufts Health Plan, working specifically in risk adjustment. Can you elaborate on what exactly risk adjustment is and what was your experience like in that role? So it was very interesting to go from an incredibly niche, niche role to, you know, enterprise strategic planning, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. But, you know, and I, I may be a little bit biased here, but I think you know, risk adjustment is really interesting for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, health payment policy and really how the money flows, you know, obviously influences so much down the line. So kind of the, the quick one-on-one about risk adjustment. So say that, you know, you're a part of a PCP or you are a PCP and um, you belong to a clinically integrated network. And so you have a panel of patients that belong to some type of managed care product. So in my situation, um, these are Medicare Advantage um, you know, members or patients. So essentially the thought here around risk adjustment is that you get a certain per member per month payment to take care of your patient. And that per member per month is really based off of two things. So the patient's age, gender, location, different demographic information, and then what conditions that patient has. And there is a lot that goes into, you know, how you know exactly what conditions a patient has. And this kind of comes into the world of medical coding and a big piece of my job, which was making sure that patients are, you know, accurately coded and being treated. And so there's a lot of work to say, you know, if you, you know, are a diabetic patient or you have diabetes or neuropathy, there are different payments associated with that. And there are, you know, the algorithms and calculations that sit behind all of this per member per month calculation, you know, is based off a lot of Medicare data, like years and years of historical data. But the thought is as a PCP, Part of this network and in a risk contract, it should cost you say $800 a month to take care of this patient. If for some reason you take care of them and it does not cost that much, you get to share in some of those savings. And so it was really interesting work about, you know, how do you communicate risk adjustment to our entire provider network? Doctors don't like to do paperwork. You know, how do you make sure that people are being coded, you know, accurately so they get paid, you know, for the care that they're doing? And so that was, you know, a pretty big component of my job. And again, you know, I started doing some of this work back in 2011. And there, you know, a lot of different models of, you know, how risk adjustments deployed and accepted. You know, it changes, you know, state to state, payer to payer. But you know, generally speaking, the growth in Medicare Advantage in has really skyrocketed, especially in you know, particular regions of the country. And this whole concept of you know, having this per member per month payment and risk taking and kind of sharing the profit, you know, assuming you're doing the right things, I think is, is very attractive for primary care physicians that are really engaged and bought into this. That said, primary care physicians are extremely burnt out right now. So it's the balance of the policy makes sense, but in reality, how we don't want people, to, you know, doctors to be documenting till, you know, three in the morning every night either just to get paid for their patients. So I think, you know, again, haven't been in this for a few years now, it's really figuring out how to make it fit into kind of our current healthcare system without any undue burden to the physicians. 
Got it. So it sounds like it's really understanding, you know, the health policy side of it, how the coding works in terms of per member per fee, sort of understanding the, the model overall, what sort of variables go into it with patient demographics and their overall conditions, and then how that ties into the care that's delivered by these physicians and ultimately, you know, how much risk they're taking on with these Medicare Advantage patients. Definitely gets more complicated than that, but high level, I mean, it's, it is an innovative kind of way to think about, you know, managing patients. And again, kind of going back to the original value-based care, I think this is something that different areas of the country have had more uptake than others, but there has been mixed success, but it is kind of an exciting payment policy uh, philosophy. Katie, you had alluded to this earlier, but you have a really diverse set of experience across the healthcare spectrum. You've been in payer, provider, and consulting settings. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how these experiences have worked to complement each other and help you become a more well-rounded healthcare professional. As an undergraduate, kind of being a business management, public health, you know, majors, I think my first view was like, oh, health plans, payers, they're the bad guys. They're the ones charging and demanding absorbent fees. And then I go and work for a health plan. And again, everybody's different. I worked for kind of a regional nonprofit health plan that again, I think where I was in Massachusetts, I think had a very, very progressive leadership. So um, kind of to my earlier comment about following the money and understanding health, like to understand healthcare, you have to actually oftentimes understand the funds flow. And so I think starting out with an appreciation for how, you know, networks are developed and maintained, the different products that are offered, and really how physicians get paid was a really critical piece to understanding kind of like the foundation of our healthcare system. As I said, from there, went into consulting work. And so uh, the Chartist Group, we have a performance practice, we have a strategy practice. You know, when you start out, you kind of, you straddle both and you see what kind of projects you get. And so I think consulting is the most drinking from the fire hose. You never know what you'll get thrown at you. You get all types of experiences and, you know, you can chalk it up to the end of the day as in a really, really amazing learning opportunity. And you get, I think, access to a lot of execs that you might not typically get access to. So I think, you know, from my standpoint, you know, clearly, you know, I'm a a fun story of a consultant who ended up going to the client she worked for, which, you know, isn't all that uncommon sometimes when you're on a local project for a number of years and you realize, you know, you don't want to be, you know, staying in hotels anymore. So I was able to get a lot of experience, you know, working for a big health system. But like I said, I had I was on partnership projects. I was on, you know, several enterprise strategic planning projects for, you know, different AMCs in different parts of the country, was on some cancer specific projects where you really get deep down into like some of the specific service lines. And so I think that set me up really now for my current role being in um, strategic planning and business development for a large system, you know, clearly worked here before. So I, I knew, you know, some of the players, I know the market, I've lived here, but I think it really did set me up. You know, if I look back, 10 years ago when I was first graduating, I probably, I didn't think I wanted to work for a health system. I really loved working for payers. And I thought, you know, they're the ones that are really dictating, you know, how care is managed because they control the money. And so I had that philosophy, but I think, you know, as systems grow larger, it's not just hospital operations when you're working for a health system. And I think, you know, where I ended up kind of at that 
corporate health system level, you can kind of see it, you know, you see the physician side, you see the hospital side, you see the payer side, and, you know, obviously a lot of health systems also own their own health plan. So, you know, I think it all can never say what if, but definitely happy with where my path took me. I think you made a really valuable point and for our listeners and that you kind of maintained a level of open-mindedness and your career experience and journey today has been really influential as far as letting you see how different pieces of the healthcare industry are kind of intertwined. For our last question, um, as you know, traditional pathways like for an MHA or an MPH student are really focused on hospital operations, so something like an administrative fellowship. But as you had just alluded to, you were able to really get a really strong foundation and strategy. So do you have any advice for how one can navigate their career in health administration and get experience that is more strategy focused versus hospital operations focused? Everything is completely dependent on you know, the organization you work for, the department you, you happen to be in. And I know this is a complete generalization, but a lot of times when you go in the fellowship route, I think it's a really, really great option for folks that are graduating, you know, an MHA or MPH program, but they don't necessarily have prior work experience if they went straight through. And so I think, you know, from that regard, you get things that you wouldn't get anywhere else. You know, I think particularly access to leadership, which if you had gone kind of a more you know, traditional route of just trying to find a job on the open market, you probably, you know, wouldn't end up in some of those rooms that you get to be in. From my perspective, so I joined a strategy consulting firm after my program and, you know, for better, for worse, it was a firm that usually it requires some level of work experience before starting there. So there's a piece there where, you know, I, I didn't actually necessarily want to go into strategy yet. My, um, I, I would say I'm actually more operationally minded, but I do think that if you are interested in strategy work and that's where your focus wants to be, consulting is one way of, you could get any project. I mean, any consulting firm, like if you said before, you never know what type of project you get, but I think there's certain business skills of how you frame, like tell a story um, that I think can really be honed in consulting. And this is someone who said, I would never do consulting. Um, but I also think you can get some of those skills again, um, working for health systems or, you know, a lot of health systems do have kind of their internal consulting arm kind of where I ended up today. And so there are a lot of, you know, as more and more systems get together, they have bigger offices of strategy. So I think there, again, there are a lot of different routes someone can take and like, I, you never necessarily know what you like until you've tried what you don't like. So, you know, for folks who think they like operations and turns out they really don't, there's probably a path for you. And I think it's networking as much as I hate to say it. It's like, I mean, that, that is a big, big piece of thing. And just knowing the different connections in your network and obviously leveraging, you know, all the great alum that we have kind of in the Sloan program, because they really are everywhere, um, you know, all throughout the country. And I think that's really the best thing you can hope for with a program is you have connections, places, and people willing to help you out. No, it's definitely a point well taken and a piece of advice I've gotten from several mentors on number one, like you'd mentioned, having an open mind. And then number two, never underestimating the value of networking. That was it for us for questions for the day, Katie. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to our well listeners. We hope you enjoyed the episode and Feel free to like and subscribe if you did enjoy our content and also leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners how we're doing. But until our next episode, take care.